Rappaport and Kim Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Thursday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except owing to a conflict of schedules that has occurred on a Thursday as the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in this program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, Greg Holland. Excellent relief pitcher Greg Holland, now recovering from Tommy John surgery, has signed with the Colorado Rockies. Such a move might seem counterintuitive for a pitcher who is attempting to rebuild his value, owing not only to the inflated run environment of course Field, but also to the thin air, which appears to have an effect on breaking balls. Of course, Greg Holland throws an excellent breaking ball. Anyways, it would seem counterintuitive. Dave Cameron, however, a well-known advocate for the devil, would like to make at least one point to the contrary. And he makes that point in what follows. Also considered in this episode, the Los Angeles Dodgers rotation has not only been one of the best in recent years, over the last three years, say, but it's projected to be, in fact, the best rotation in 2017. Clayton Kershaw has obviously much to do with that, but the Dodgers have complimented Kershaw with a surfeit of talented but also injury-prone pitchers. What is the wisdom of this strategy, I asked Dave Cameron. And if I recall, he answers it. I think he answers it. What he definitely does is to provide one of his famous affirmations, one of his famous life-affirming statements, in this particular case, on the topic of opportunity. Not everyone really does have the opportunity because you're going to get squeezed out by someone who's better than you. I thought, certainly, to get one through the difficult times. What else one can do to get through the difficult times is to acquire an ad-free membership to Fangraphs.com. You know how advertisements are essentially designed to short-circuit our reason, forcing us to develop associations with products that we would not otherwise have? Well, for the cost of $50 annually, or the price of a cup of coffee, of a very expensive, too expensive cup of coffee, I'll say, one can acquire an ad-free yearly membership with Fangraphs.com and surf the site not only without ads, but also with faster loading speeds than you can imagine, if your imagination is particularly poor. It is an ad-free membership at Fangraphs. Google probably... Fangraphs membership to find it. That flawless and cohesive message having been concluded, let us now get to the conversation with Dave Cameron. What is it? It is Fangraphs. Idea. Who does it feature? That same managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. It also caused me to get fungal pneumonia, MRSA, and C. diff. So some downsides to chemotherapy. <laughs> Just in case anyone needed an argument. Right, in case you were thinking about like recreationally taking chemotherapy. I, I <laughs> that's right after that's right after legalization of marijuana. That's right. The next thing is like yeah, over the counter chemo. Over the counter chemotherapy. Yeah, that does. I don't think that's going to be as popular. <laughs> I think it's it's probably going to flop. Yeah, <clears throat> let's. Uh, mm, opportunities for segue are limited, but <laughs> let's let's get into Greg Holland. Okay? I can't. I can only hear you try. Let's try a segue. Um, let's see. Uh, um, chemotherapy brings people close to death, just like <laughs> Greg Holland's career was close to dying, <laughs> no, but has been go. revived. That's not the worst attempt I've ever heard. No, it's a little morbid, but yeah. um, okay. Greg Holland wants a fantastic relief pitcher. Not that long ago. Not that long ago. Yeah. Uh, injured as a, as are many pitchers. I don't know. What is it? What is it? What rate of pitchers uh, eventually 
either have ligament damage or either are, are forced to undergo Tommy John surgery or have ligament damage of some kind. I think according to John Rogel, who maintains a Tommy John spreadsheet, I think he says like 28% of all pitchers in baseball, in Major League Baseball, have either had Tommy John surgery or are recovering from Tommy John surgery. Okay. So that's not so great. That's yeah, a, lot. It's a lot. Of, yeah. a lot of guys. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so Holland is recovering, has recovered, is we're going to be ready for spring regardless. Yeah, I think he's still recovering. Right. Yeah. And so the question, <clears throat> of course, is uh, with whom would he sign? He, uh, You would have to have thought that if he had reached free agency like, um, like many pitchers do, he would have been up for a similar sort of deal as the one, well, I don't know, maybe not quite the sort that Araldus Chapman received, but something approaching that. Um, um, I would say probably more in the Melanson, uh, Jansen range, just because I think there's been concerns about his health for a while, where Chapman's got clean health and Jansen's got clean health and Melanson's got clean health. With Holland, you know, even before he blew out his arm and had to have Tommy John surgery, he had, um, concerning instances of like forearm tightness that were, um, yeah, I mean, there's, plus there's a lot of sliders. I think he, he would have gotten a health discount relative to those guys. Right. Um, and what appears to have happened is, uh, uh, well, of course, we assume that more than one team was vying for his services, but he has chosen an offer from the Colorado Rockies, who would, it's what, it's a year with incentives or vesting option? Yeah, it's a little, we don't know the exact details yet. Um, so it's a one-year, $7 million base, so he can't make less than $7 million, and it sounds like if he pitches really well and gets, you know, reaches all of his incentives, he can make up to $14 million. Um, and then the vesting option is unclear, right? So it could be just a traditional vesting option where it's like, hey, if you save 30 games or, you know, finish, that's generally more finish than save. So let's say you finish 45 games, then you're under contract for 15 million. But if I'm, I, you know, we don't know yet. My guess is this is going to be some kind of, uh, vesting player option where Holland will have the right to go back into free agency. Cause that's reportedly before he signed, that's really what he wanted is he wanted a, a guarantee for 2017 with the right to hit free agency at the end of the season. Um, and I'm guessing he probably didn't give the Rockies a second year. Like if he pitches well, they just get a second year. That wouldn't be a, the kind of contract he was looking for. Okay. So, um, Travis Sodchik, uh, writing for the, for the site this morning, uh, examined, I mean, he, he, first of all, I think, uh, cited something, a, a rather obvious point. Um, whether it's true or not, it's uh, still something that would occur to most people is that Colorado, because of the run environment there, is not necessarily the first choice for most pitchers, uh, who are looking to go uh, who are looking to go rebuild their value. And, in yep. fact, it's not the, fir- that's the first choice for other sorts of pitchers either. I think it's probably the last choice for basically yeah. every pitcher. Right. Okay. And the pitchers who have signed there as free agents, uh, I think probably what – is it uh, the same offseason, back-to-back offseasons? It was Mike Hampton. And Denny Nagel, the same offseason. Yeah. Right, in the same offseason. Now, yeah. those deals were – they were probably overpays at the time. Oh, yeah. And, and they also ended disastrously in both cases, I believe. Correct, yeah. Okay, all right. So nothing really good to come of it. Um, and uh, Sachik took a look at, um, you know, not only paid some attention to that, but also looked at the sort of deals that pitchers had received upon leaving Colorado. And there are not many cases to which one can point. Right. Uh, in which a player who has left has received a particularly attractive deal. And in fact, uh, with the exception maybe of Brian Fuentes' 
two-year, $17.5 million deal uh, from 2009, which if you pro, you know, if you adjusted it for current value. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, that's pretty good, and that might be something along the lines. Uh, I mean, you know, Holland, at his best, um, that might be something for which you'd be shooting. But in mo- most other cases, there's not a lot. And then do you look at a bunch of other pitchers like Colin McHugh or Juan DeCasio, um, even Christian Friedrich? Yeah, Friedrich. Uh, who were either, in Nicasio's case, traded for a player to be named later, or in McHugh and Friedrich were combina- you know They were both designated for assignment. One was waived. One was claimed off waivers. They have gone on to uh, put up considerably better numbers after leaving. Yeah, which a lot of pitchers do because pitching in Colorado sucks. Right. Um, and, and it seems to suck for at least two reasons. One is... Because just the run environment is different, yeah. and then two, and this is this is tied in. Uh, it might there's a possibility, true or false, that it affects some pitchers more than it does others because of the dryness or the thinness of the air relative uh, on the breaking ball. Right. So it seems like breaking balls do not move as much at altitude as they do uh, at sea level or closer mm-hmm. to sea level. So a guy who is a you know, breaking ball dependent heavy pitcher like Greg Holland uh, could potentially find that pitch to be less effective, um, which is one of the reasons why over the last few years the Rockies have made a point of acquiring fastball heavy pitchers. So last year they made a really weird trade for Jake McGee, um, and part of that logic was Jake McGee basically just throws fastballs. So he will not be harmed as much because he doesn't have a breaking ball uh, to throw, so that the fact that the breaking ball doesn't move doesn't really matter because he just throws fastballs. That didn't work. Jake McGee was bad. Uh, so now this year they went and got Mike Dunn and, uh, and Greg Holland to pitch out of their bullpen, both of whom throw a lot of sliders. I guess they're pivoting. Who knows? Okay, right. And, and that's true, and I think we've discussed this before. There does not seem to be a lot in the way of coherence of the, the sort of decisions that the Rockies make. Um, but, um, well, perhaps this is a new plan. It's uh, other signs would point to no. So in any case... Uh, Sachik laid out a number of the reasons why one would suspect that Holland wouldn't uh, have chosen to go to Colorado, and yet he has anyway. Uh, a little bit later today, you, uh, in your role as the as an advocate for the devil, uh, Dave Cameron. That, that's actually what my business card says. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and, and most people believe that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, suggested that this is maybe a sly move by Greg Holland. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think there's a chance that Greg Holland will make more money having gone to Colorado than if he would have signed with Washington, who was generally considered to be the other team in the mix. Okay. Now there were other teams cited in in in, in uh, by Sachik at least, and I think that he was citing other sources. Um, and, and among them were, for example, t- Tampa Bay Rays and Cincinnati Reds, uh, both of which are clubs that are not uh, regarded as being. Uh, as being favorites uh, to win their division by any means, in particular the Reds, who are certainly rebuilding, and uh, would have also had the same advantage. Now, I think the thing to which you're pointing, right, is that Greg Holland, part of what might make this an inspired choice, to use your words, is the fact that he's uh, he, he and or his agent is probably banking on the fact that he will be traded at the deadline. I mean, not necessarily, but I think he sees that as a now higher possibility. So if you're evaluating your options, and I, like, to be clear, Cincinnati and Tampa Bay, like, you can, you can kind of squint and be like, ah, oh, maybe it would fit there, but like, Cincinnati has race sailed Iglesias and they don't have any money. So it's not, I mean, they could have made Greg Holland their closer, but they don't necessarily, you know, it wouldn't have been 
open and shut that Holland is their best reliever this year. Rysel Iglesias is pretty good when he's healthy. Same thing in Tampa Bay. They have Alex Colomay. Um, you know, they have actually a lot of pitchers down there that they could move to the bullpen. Uh, it's the same thing where they could say, okay, we're going to demote this guy who was really good in the ninth inning last year, but that could cause some problems. I don't think either of those teams had kind of the void in the ninth inning that the Rockies had. Um, so, and the Nationals are probably in a similar place where they could promote Sean Kelly, but they lost Mark Lance and they don't have a true closer at the moment, someone who's closed before. So in, in in Colorado and Washington, it's like two cases where he's going to pitch the ninth inning. There's no question about it. As long as he's healthy, he gets the ninth inning, which is probably something Greg Holland wanted. So I, I think, like, realistically, these were probably the two options. Right. And then, so for you, what is the – if you are a free agent, if you are Greg Holland, what is the what is the advantage for choosing Colorado over Washington? If, if that is uh, – and I would say all things being equal, but perhaps that's part of it. Perhaps all things were not equal. Yeah, I mean, most likely, like, you know, I mean, I, I think the post I wrote I think is interesting, and I think is there's some – a lot of true things in there. I wouldn't have written them if I didn't think they were true. I think the reality is like he took the most money. That's probably what happened here is like the Rockies just offered more money than anybody else. Uh, but I think there was probably some calculation from his or his agent's part of, hey, look, if we sign with Washington and we have a bounce back year, there's a decent chance we're getting a qualifying offer next year uh, because we don't think the Rockies or the, the Nationals are going to trade us at the trade deadline. The Rockies might. So if we're really looking to get our maximum contract in 2018 – uh, even with the qualifying offer system changing, it's still targeted against teams like the Yankees and Dodgers who have a lot of money to spend. They're still going to have to pay pretty significant premium, pretty significant taxes if they want to sign Holland. So if you sign with Washington and have a good year and hit free agency next year, but now the Yankees and Dodgers aren't bidding on you, that's going to hurt your market. Where if you go to Colorado, have the same kind of bounce back year, you assume that teams are smart enough to just park adjust the numbers and say, you know, he was pitching at altitude. Like, the fact that he has a 4.25 ERA doesn't matter. Like, he's, the stuff came back, he pitched on back-to-back days, the curveball or the slider was still spinning. Like, there's a good pitcher here. Um, and you have the Dodgers and Yankees able to bid on you because they traded you at the trade deadline. That's probably a better outcome. There have been reports of, and perhaps this is specifically with regard to, um, to minor league pitchers. Although I feel like it might have been the case for Matthew Bowman somehow who is now a Cardinals reliever. It might have happened for him uh, when he was paying, playing with one of the Cardinals affiliates, is perhaps how it was, uh, of pitchers going away from certain pitches when they're faced with um, altitude. Because, of course, while the Rockies are the main example of that type of uh, – and Coors Field is the main example of that in the major leagues, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of clubs in the, in the PCL and then I guess probably the Cal League too – which suffer from, or you know, are in which play, pitchers must contend with a combination of, I guess probably not just altitude but also temperature. Yep. Um, which which and dryness or aridity, aridity, which forces them, um, which might make certain of their pitches less effective. And I know that I think uh, Eric Longenhagen, I believe it was a prospect named Jorge Lopez, who's currently in the Brewers system. Of course, the Brewers AAA affiliate is Colorado Springs currently. And if it if it wasn't Lopez, it was another pitcher who had been pitching pitching a AAA, lost confidence in his curveball, was demoted uh, to the AA affiliate for the Brewers, and began pitching like himself again. Um, and who knows how, how the club will uh, proceed with his development? But the idea that a pitcher whose breaking ball, as we've suggested, um, you know, a pitch upon which Holland is um, dependent, um, might go away from that pitch and and fundamentally alter them. Is that a concern, do you think, for the Rockies or for Holland? Uh, not really, because I think when you're developing young prospects, 
Um, you're hoping that they can, you know, refine a pitch and say, so like if you're spinning a breaking ball and then it gets hammered because it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere, uh, at altitude, then you're not necessarily learning the lesson of like, oh, I threw this pitch in this count and I got a good result, uh, so I'm gonna learn how to pitch. Theoretically, Greg Holland already kind of knows how his breaking ball works and has had success with it and knows how to get batters to chase it. So if he goes to Colorado and sees that things are not working the same way there, I would imagine the Rockies will hope he will adjust in order to pitch as well as he can in Colorado. But when he goes on the road, I would imagine Greg Holland's going to be like, oh, good, <laughs> normalcy again. I know how to do this, and uh, and he'll pitch like he always has. So uh, I think that we're, we're smart enough here not to speak in absolutes, but if you were to assess the probability of this scenario, what would it be? And now allow me to explain the scenario. Greg Holland pitches fine. Um, his raw numbers are not particularly great, but he is preventing runs at above average rate. He is traded at the deadline to a contending team. He becomes a free agent and, you know, uh, eventually finds his way to a more lucrative contract. Yeah, I think that's probably like 75% likely. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, I, there is something that is compelling to me about a player, <laughs> about a free agent choosing to play for a worse team because he'll know he'll be traded and won't be given a qualifying offer or won't be subject to a qualifying offer. This is the definition of perverse incentives. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Mean, how many relievers have been extended qualifying offers? I mean, you don't have to give me a, a total, but like each year, what percentage of? Not yeah, it's like one or two a year. Like David Robertson got one. Uh, mm-hmm. Mariano Rivera got one, obviously. Jansen, Chapman, Melanson this year. Um, I'm sure some others that I'm forgetting, but I think it's like six or seven total. But now the qualifying offer structure is is changing, yes? Yes, right. So they're not gonna you're not gonna lose your first round pick if you sign a guy anymore. You but the the team that's losing the player will still receive some sort of sandwich pick. Not necessarily. So oh. now, in order to receive compensation, which this this part is designed to reduce the number of qualifying offers given out, is you have to receive a contract greater than fifty million dollars, and then you, the kind of compensation you get is based on what kind of market size revenues you have and whether you're over the luxury tax. So I think if you're considered like a revenue sharing receiver, then you get a pick at the end of the first round. If you're a revenue sharing payer, I think you get a pick at like the end of the second round. And if you're over the luxury tax, I think you get nothing. Or you get a pick at like the end of the 50th round or something. Like it's, um, they really like put the penalties in place for like the teams that are over the luxury tax get hammered on draft pick compensation. Which, um, that's not, I suppose it's not the Yankees terrible. and Dodgers. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. These are the teams um, they're going after. <clears throat> uh, this reminds me, I actually had, was having a conversation with Travis Sachik as he was working on this post. We were attempting to uh, maybe understand the, the move from Holland's perspective, the curious bet. And one uh, theme that arose, and you, you and I have discussed this before, is a player's – or the propensity among players to to bet on themselves. Yeah. Right? We've seen this – now, obviously, there are cases where, where that doesn't happen as much, and we've seen that with um, – at least, uh, you know, in recent history, prospects or, you know, not prospects, but very young players accepting a, an extension that buys out many of their free agent years, although we've seen, we haven't seen anything like, you know, the Evan Longoria contracts of late. We have seen uh, players, uh, especially field players, I believe, who are, who are willing to go to arbitration and maybe uh, to outlast that. 
um, you know, to reach free agency. Uh, but in, in many cases, players are willing to bet on themselves. And we, uh, I was suggested maybe this is a case where Holland feels as though no park uh, can uh, can alter his stuff to the degree that it would make him ineffective. Uh, it, this led to another part of the conversation, and, and it was had it concerned another post that Sachik wrote recently, which was the shrinking middle class of baseball. Right. And this is very interesting because. Essentially what uh, his points brought to light, and I'm sure this is something I understood obliquely before, but uh, his post illustrated it more clearly for me, is that while the top whatever, 10% essentially of players, um, while the recent CBA protects their earning power, uh, it does seem to compromise the earning power of the remaining 90%. Uh, If that's true, it seems as though players... It, do you have a case here where players really, where all of them are betting on themselves to the detriment of 90% of them? But, but all of them maybe regard themselves as having an opportunity to reach that top 10%, or even a likelihood of reaching it. Right. I mean, I, so I think the Players Association would dispute the notion, right? Like, they don't think that this is a deal designed around helping the top 10%. Um, I think we can argue that maybe they're wrong about that, but I don't think they would say that that was the plan and it wasn't the intent. But I do think there's a little bit of like the capitalistic mindset here of like everyone has the opportunity to become wealthy beyond your wildest dreams, so therefore it's a fair system without acknowledging that like there aren't enough spots for everyone to be wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. Like not everyone really does have the opportunity because you're going to get squeezed out by someone who's better than you. So like just because Mike Trout can make a lot of money doesn't actually help like I don't know, Jolbert Cabrera, is he still around? Uh, Someone like Jolbert Cabrera, Cabrera doesn't have the opportunity to make Mike Trout money because he's not as good as Mike Trout. Or Ryan Hannigan. Ryan Hannigan. Ryan Hannigan, that's a more modern modern comparison. I think I actually thought of Jolbert Cabrera because he's the manager of the Salem-Kaiser Volcanoes. uh, Oh, right, you would be attending. I will be attending a game there, so that's (laughs) why Jolbert Cabrera was in my mind. Um, Right, so Ryan Hannigan has theoretical opportunity that is an actual opportunity. Um, and I think it's easy to design a system that says, like, well, you could just be better, and then you could get a lot of money. Um, I mean, that's basically how America works. <laughs> so, right, and, and I would um, – there does seem to be something specific. and I, I would, It's almost an un-American sentiment, right, to embrace one's mediocrity. Yeah. Is, is it – yeah, I think people are not happy if you incentivize something less than greatness. And, but at the same time, there's a clear paradox where everyone has the, in theory, the opportunity for greatness. But by definition, it's only going, it only that's only going to define ten percent of the population, as, and then the other ninety percent will just be there. And I suppose they'll feel it's uh, their faults that they have not, it's their respective faults that they have not ascended to greatness. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if they feel that way, but I think that's kind of the judgment that society puts on them, right? Like, yeah. oh, hey, look, we had a lottery, and you didn't win the lottery. You should have been smarter at picking numbers. <laughs> like, that's um, silly, for one, and not a great way to run society, but it's basically what we do. Yeah, okay. Well, that's uh, perhaps getting into uh, contentious territory, although I will not say irrelevant territory. Let me ask you about some more of the haves and uh, as opposed to the have-nots. The haves among the haves are the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, f- for good reason, I suppose. We've been uh, covering them quite a bit this past week at the site. Craig Edwards did that in particular, looking at the rotation, uh, which he describes uh, both now and over the past few years as risky, expensive, and fantastic. 
It's true. Now, here's one. Uh, so we know that the, the Dodgers rotation has been quite good. M- much of that has to do with Clayton Kershaw. I believe Edwards suggests that if you were to place Kershaw on the Padres, who have the worst projected rotation, they would immediately become the sixth best rotation. <laughs> Clayton Kershaw um, matters a lot. Right. So employing Clayton Kershaw is a strong move. But what the uh, what the Dodgers have done after that is to, especially since Greinke has left, they have invested in a lot of pitchers who, when healthy, are quite effective, but who are rarely healthy. Is yeah. that a fair way to su- to summarize it? Yeah, I think they've bet on talent and have hoped that health would work out rather than the other way around. <clears throat> now, here's the thing. It has worked out, right? They've had one of the top rotations over the last three years, I think. They're projected for the best rotation this next year. What Edwards found, though, was that in, 215, in 2015 and 16 that the uh, – they paid the club paid on average eight to somewhere between eight and nine million dollars per win. Yeah. Um, coincidentally, but um, notably, the cost for, to um, get a free agent on the open market is roughly eight uh, between eight and nine million dollars per win. Uh, it might be a little less than that. I mean, I'm probably going to comp- publish a piece next week showing like the, what the cost of the win in this offseason has been. I think we assumed going in that it was going to be between 8 and 9. It was close to 8 last year. But then, like, no one's spending any money. So everyone has been a good deal this winter. So I wouldn't actually be surprised if, like, when we look at the data this year, it's probably closer to 7. Okay, so closer to 7. So, yeah. in effect, what we could say about the Dodgers is that they've been paying more than they would for uh, simply a regular free agent. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's probably true. Based on, you know, uh, the Casimir, McCarthy, like, those kinds of sightings. I think when you look at what, like, Avon Nova got this winter, like, they're they're paying a, above what the market has paid this winter. They didn't pay those contracts this winter, but that's how it's worked out. Well, what would have happened uh, – what's to say that they – I mean, it's worked out for them, but it's also been expensive for them. What's to say that they shouldn't have just signed some – you know, kind of middle of the road, but maybe healthier options. Is, would that have been a better strategy? I mean, I think that's kind of the what the criticism of, of some of their moves the last few winners have been um, has been like, take the safer route. Why are you taking all these risks? Um, but I think that they have protected some of their assets by not signing some of these safer guys. Like a lot of the the players that people wanted them to acquire were like, you know, say Cole Hamels, who would have cost them a lot of players in trade, or players who required them to go up draft picks, and they have done a good job of turning their draft picks into valuable prospects. Um, so I think that they took like maybe a longer view, and were like, hey, look, if we sign McCarthy or Kazmi or some of these guys, we can keep um, players that we think are more valuable assets or acquire more valuable assets with the draft picks we're retaining, uh, rather than just pushing in on the current. And so I think by keeping their eyes on both the present and the future, they've probably sacrificed some present value. Uh, like Their team hasn't been quite as good as it potentially could have been in the short term, but it's probably in a much better situation in the long term. Right. And what's the deal with that rotation now? Uh, it's Kershaw. They cite Hill. Uh, Kenta Maeda is going to come back. Yeah, Kenta. He, he's going to be good. Uh, right. And then, and then uh, Urias, Julio I think, is Urias, probably good. Yeah. Right, um, but then you have this whole collection, including Wood, uh, McCarthy. Uh, is Scott is Scott Casimir still employed yeah, by them? Still, still around. Right, uh, Ryu is maybe if he's uh, if he's healthy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he hasn't been for what two seasons now, so he's yeah. not. He was a good lot before he got hurt. Yeah. He was good before he got hurt, and then um, I think Brock Stewart was maybe okay in some innings yeah. last year. The point is, they have so many options. Ross Stripling still around. Yeah. And so will they? I, like, what do you do with Brandon McCarthy, for example, who, when he has pitched, 
he's pitched quite well. I mean, my guess is they're just going to let it sort itself out in spring training. Like, so you just, like, have those guys all throw for a month and say, let's see who's healthy at the end. So, most likely Ryu's going to start the year on the DL. Like, even if he's fine, they have the cover to start him on the DL and have him kind of throw an extended spring and build him back up since he hasn't pitched in a couple of years. So I think that's probably the easy one. Uh, uh, so then you're looking at basically Kazmir, McCarthy, uh, Brock Stewart, and Alex Wood fighting for one spot. Um, Wood is potentially a left-handed reliever who could help them because their left-handed relief core isn't that great, so he could potentially move to the bullpen if they wanted to. Um, so that's an option that they could explore. Uh, if McCarthy and Casimir or McCarthy or Casimir pitch really well and kind of claim the spot, then the Brock Stewart probably goes back to AAA. Um, but McCarthy and Casimir get hurt a lot. So if they both break down and Alex Wood is pitching well, then probably Alex Wood is the starter. If all those guys break down, then they have Brock Stewart. So I think they're probably just going to let those guys throw until the end of March and then figure out who's the last man standing. Does it make sense to acquire this sort of like a gang of semi-broken or, you know, brisk, uh, risk or injury-prone pitchers? Because then that allows you, you now you sort of uh, gestured through this before and tried to flush it out maybe a little bit, is it, it allows you to retain your starting pitcher prospects, right? And then when you have pitching prospects, like <clears throat> when, you, when it when a pitcher graduates from the minors to the majors, he goes, uh, I mean, he's either becomes a, a bullpen piece or a starting rotation, but he, you do not need to deploy him in a specific way. However, if you're attempting to sign, uh, if you're attempting to sign free agents to fill a specific position, like, for example, second base, the options are many or much fewer. Yeah. Yeah? And so if you trade, like, like the Dodgers did, if you trade Jose de Leon, if you have Jose de Leon, you can trade him. You can kind of look around the league and pick out the second baseman that's most appealing to you. Right. I mean, having young, controllable assets gives you a lot of options. I think, you know, using the term options is not necessarily the way uh, they're often referred to in baseball, but, like, the actual option years, those matter to the Dodgers a lot, too. And this is one of the reasons they've been protective of young pitching or tried to acquire young pitching is we saw like more than anyone else in baseball they used the triple a shuttle last year where um you know a guy would throw make a start get optioned out um and they you know stockpiled guys like mike bolsinger who's not great but had options and so they could have mike bolsinger make a start and then he'd head back to vegas and then they'd carry a an extra bench player for four days and then they'd figure out who their fifth starter was the next time around and so if you have these kind of optionable guys you can basically buy yourself an extra bench player in 75% of your games because you don't have to carry your fifth starter because you sent him to AAA after his start. And that's something that the Dodgers did very effectively last year. And I think they put a real high value on a guy like Brock Stewart who can come up, start a game, head back to AAA, come up a couple weeks later, start another game, head back to AAA, come up a few weeks after that, pitch out of the bullpen for a couple weeks. Um, the flexibility that they have in... Um, Sending guys up and down the AAA ladder is uh, is something that they turned into real value last year. And what's the, the rule? Is it what is it? Ten, ten days? Ten, you said? ten days. Yeah. Yeah, ten days. Or, um, but isn't uh, an exception if there's an injury? Right. So if you send a guy down and then someone gets hurt, you can bring that guy back up prematurely, um, or not prematurely, but like before the ten day period is up. They, Major League Baseball is not going to let you fake that though. Like you can't send Brock Stewart down. Mm-hmm. And then four days later, like, some guy magically gets hurt and you invent an injury and you do that all season, like, they would, they would catch on. Right, you could not rely on. Yeah. You could maybe do it, like, once, but. Right, okay. Uh, last thing about which I want to ask you, um, there was some talk, let's see. Oh yes, you wrote regarding, uh, Mark Trumbo and Luis Valbuena. You wrote about the tax of the everyday player. Mark Trumbo, 
I mean, you, 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 you compare their numbers, and uh, in some ways the two players are similar, Valbuena and Trumbo. Uh, in some ways, I think you could argue and, uh, that uh, Valbuena is superior uh, yeah. when he's on the field. Uh, the problem is that he is frequently not on the field to face right-handed pitchers. Left-handed. Left-handed pitchers because he is a left-handed person himself. He faces righties almost exclusively, at least in a starting capacity. Um, <coughs> we also saw – who was this? Oh, yes, uh, Tony Mangino was writing about the top – maybe the top NL right fielders is perhaps something about which he was writing. Sure. And he mentioned, he mentioned Seth Smith yep. as a uh, – That as was a an, an AL right fielder, but yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, well, who did he do? Who did he play for this last year? Let's say he Seth played for Smith Seattle was in the American League and is still in the American League. Yes, he re- he remains in the American League. He remains there. I get him confused with Matt Joyce sometimes. They are similar players. players. Yeah, the um, Seth Smith also he uh, Blangino cited his platoon his platoon uh, splits etc. Uh, I know that Tom Tango and um, is feels strongly about this, I believe, and I believe that Mitchell Lichtman is willing to go, uh, is willing to make um, very enthusiastic statements about this as well. Mitchell feels um, the most strongly about all things. About, about many yeah. issues. Yeah. And, and one uh, one about, uh, he feels strongly about is the um, is platoon splits and our ability to assess them. Yeah. It is not uncommon to see in writing about baseball, even what I would regard as smart analysis of baseball, to say that a player is confined to a platoon role. However, um, if we believe that a player has a certain skill level, a certain true talent level, then um, I think that the the generic the, the generic split, the generic the, the the measurement of his generic platoon split is um, is relevant for a long time because I think to to get a real sense of true talent platoon split requires a lot of plate appearances, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, so you you seem to be to be speaking fairly confidently about Luis Valbuena's platoon split, but do we actually know it exists? Well, I think in the piece I tried to make it clear that like we don't actually know how big the Valbuena split is or whether it's huge. Like for his career, he has a twelve point WRC plus split. Uh, the last few years, it's been twenty points or twenty five points, something like that. Uh, it's maybe thirty points even. Um, it's been bigger over the last few years, in part because he got really good at hitting right-handed pitching, and so it's not so much that he got worse against lefties; he just got better against one type of pitcher and not against the other. Um, but the the point was um, that if we assumed that Valbuena had a one of the larger platoon splits in general, even then. Uh, you could still play him every day. Like, the idea that a guy like Valbuena can't play against left-handed pitching isn't really true. He's just not very good or very valuable against left-handed pitching. But for a team that was like, man, I just really can't afford to run a platoon, um, that doesn't mean you can't sign a platoon player. It just means that you're going to distribute your performances a little more unevenly, right? So instead of having a guy who's mediocre against everybody, you're going to have a guy who's good against some guys and terrible against other guys. That's going to result in kind of the same overall production, um, just not in the exact same fashion. I guess you, but you can also, I mean, not to the same degree you can with, the, you know, the, the way you might leverage relievers, but you could bat Luis Valbuena ninth, first yeah, right. first against right-handers yeah. and then bat him ninth against lefties, yeah, right? Yeah, right. I mean, I think the, 
polarization of a skill in this case is actually probably a positive. Like, obviously the ideal is that you just have a guy who's like, Miguel Cabrera hits everybody. Like, you don't, don't ever have to worry about him. Just pit him forth and, and call it a day. Um, but I think if you're dealing with flawed players, having a guy who's good against one one side and not good, especially against right-handed pitching, and not so good against left-handed pitching, you can take advantage of that better than if you have a guy who's just meh against everybody. Yeah. Yeah, you can. You know, Aaron Hicks hit the ball real hard this year. I was thinking about that because Miguel Cabrera, I think, he led uh, all players in terms of exit speed. Yeah. Aaron Hicks um, was also well acquitted by that measure. It's interesting. Yeah, but uh, I don't think anyone's thinking that Aaron Hicks is going to be a great power hitter, do you? No, but exit velocity is often not power. Exit velocity is often, I think uh, Mike Petriello wrote about this last week, Ryan Zimmerman had like the sixth highest exit velocity in baseball last year, and he was terrible uh, because yeah. Ryan Zimmerman hits a lot of balls to the ground. And like exit velocity goes up as launch angle goes down. There's an inverse correlation there. Yeah. So you can hit the ball really hard at an infielder, and it's an out. If you hit the ball really hard in the outfield, like you get it up, that's when you do some damage. And so, so fly ball exit velocity. Yeah, it's lower important. than ground ball exit velocity. Typically, but if a player can show a sustained uh, ex- high exit velocity on fly balls, then that's probably he's probably going to hit for some power. Yeah, that's Mark Trumbo. That's Mark Trumbo. Yeah. Well, good for him. Yeah. Good for Marky Trumbo. Yeah, where did he go? Aaron Hicks, 90 miles per hour. Okay, yeah, uh, you fulfilled your obligation. Cool, Cameron. I think, and I think this uh, this worked out well. Good your recording system. But let's say goodbye to you. Okay. Uh, first, I'll say goodbye thank to you. you. First, I'll say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. Are you listening? Are you ready for it? I'm here. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. It's that I and this. That I and this. Yeah.